0: The scripture lesson this morning, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word, and we thank you that your word is truth, and ask now that you would sanctify sanctify us by it, we pray, by the power of your spirit, as we pray in Christ's name, amen. As a kid growing up in the 80s... From time to time, we would watch some of the Jacques Cousteau television specials that were aired, and I I remember how thrilling and mesmerizing it would be to see footage of what was taking place in the depths of the ocean, or to get to observe marine and animal life in faraway places. Since then, plenty of movies have have been produced, whether by National Geographic, Disney, or others, that take us on similar explorations. One such movie documentary which had some interesting parts as well as some contrived drama was Atlantis Rising, released in 2017, in which a search is made for the lost city of Atlantis and kind of based on or uh, driven by the works of Plato as a kind of treasure map to lead the way. The documentary explores various theories about Atlantis, visits several locations, both above and below the ocean, which reveal uh, the ruins of ancient cities, uh, some of the technology that was used in those cities, and then employing various graphics and maps to enhance the theories, etc. of course, the idea of finding a lost ancient city of such renown is intriguing, and what an accomplishment it would be to put the clues together and be the one to find Atlantis. Well, this theme of exploration is one we've noted to varying degrees in recent weeks in our study of Paul's letter to the Colossians. And It's one we continue this morning as we come back to chapter 2, verses 6 through 15, which is key, uh, which is a key context, uh, is key for the context not only for this letter, but also these verses articulate a message that is central to the Christian faith as a whole. And having considered verses 6 through 8 last Sunday, we'll move on to verses 9 through 12 today, heeding the Apostles' teaching as he continues to build his argument, directing the Colossians to their singular faith in Christ, and Christ only, and in the growth and maturity there to pursue. Paul's letter to the Colossians has a symphonic quality, in that it builds upon key themes, coming back to them at various points, further embellishing the truth he's seeking to impart. We noted last time that verses 6 and 7 serve a dual purpose, basically summarizing everything that Paul has said thus far in the letter while also giving an outline for everything that he's planning to address. And then in verse 8, Paul's warning of the danger for which he's concerned about on behalf of the Colossians is plainly stated when he exhorts them to be on the lookout so that they're not carried off like booty through the philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the order of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, as we'll go on to see, Paul's chiefly concerned about the Judaizers in Colossae, those who would argue that circumcision and other practices are what, that they need to be added to Christ, that their religion is far more ancient and has a longer-standing history than this Christianity stuff, which is only a few decades old. And you may also recall from last Sunday that we spent a fair amount of time noting some of the details of Paul's grammar and the significance of certain verb tenses and the theology that conveys and whether or not they're in the active or passive voice. We considered in particular that Paul uses quite a few participles over the course of verses 6 through 15, mostly reflecting the ongoing action or states of being in which believers are to continue or pursue. We also noted an all-important phrase that Paul uses some 8 to 9 times in verses 6 to 15, five of which we find in verses 9 through 12, in him or with him. They basically can say convey the same thing. And so what the apostle is doing in this section is reinforcing and deepening the Colossians' understanding of who Christ is and what he has done and why they shouldn't succumb to any competing voices. Christ is all-sufficient for salvation and life. He is the all-sufficient answer to the threat posed by the theological pirates that would seek to carry the Colossians away. So let's continue with our archaeological dig of Paul's glorious text and see what is further here for our faith and life today. Having given the warning of not being taken uh, captive or deceived uh, according to human tradition or according to the elementary rules of the world and not according to Christ, Paul continues in verse 9, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now your initial reaction to Paul's statement may be to wonder why that's so important. Why why that's so significant and it may not even be the response we would have expected. But once again, Paul is expanding on a previous theme. Back in 119 in that glorious hymn, Paul declares that in him was pleased to all the fullness to dwell. And there we made the connection to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Here Paul is more explicitly saying that in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead uh, of deity bodily. Now first of all, Appreciate that Paul uses a present active verb, which means that the fullness of the Godhead still dwells in Christ bodily. It's not just something that was true of Jesus earthly ministry, but a reality that continues to be true. Perhaps that's stating the obvious, but let's not overlook it. Second, the point that Paul is making is incredibly profound. God was fully present in Jesus within history. The fullness relates to God's presence. And we're so used to the idea of the hypostatic union, that Jesus is fully God and fully man, we almost take it for granted. But notice what Paul is saying here. The fullness of God was bodily present upon the earth in the person of Jesus Christ. He was, he is the reality of the indwelling God. Jesus is not a shadow of reality or a virtual reality. No, he is something. He is someone who is real, solid, genuine, and true. And part of why that's so important is because, by way of contrast and comparison, Paul is showing how much those peddling their traditions or deceits fall short. You can't add to God. He's God. God is the fullness. There's nothing else needed. And he came to the earth in the person of Jesus Christ, born of Mary in Bethlehem, the city of David. This same Jesus also suffered under Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea at the time, even as we confess each and every week in the Nicene Creed, firmly connecting this Jesus to a particular time in history. The Colossians' faith must be firmly rooted in the Jesus of history, who is also the creator of all things, is also the reconciler of all things, the one in whom we have reconciliation with God, who has made us saints. And don't forget what does it mean to be a saint? It means that we have sanctuary access, our sin has been dealt with, and we can get near to God. And part of Paul's point continues to be that you don't need anything in addition to Jesus, to this Jesus. You don't need any secret knowledge or extra blessing, and you certainly don't need to be circumcised to validate your faith. Still more, consider what it means that the fullness of the Godhead of, of God dwells in Jesus bodily, and we've already made the connection between bodily and the incarnation, and we're correct to do that, but we should also understand that the fact that since we have bodies that enable us to be in relationship with other people, the fact that God in the person of Jesus took on a body meant God could be encountered directly in and through this particular human being, Christ. This somewhat takes us back to the conversation Jesus had with the disciples in John 14, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? Or even as John begins his first letter, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life "...was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ." Do you hear how, how, how tangible, how tactile the, the disciples' experience was with Jesus? And Paul is is basically affirming this same message, that nothing less, that no one less than 100% God tabernacled in a fully human body in the person of Jesus Christ. So what else do you need? Well, Paul further strengthens his argument in verse 10 as he continues, And you are in him, having been fulfilled, who is the head of all rule and authority. Now back to grammar lessons. You are is a present active verb, indicating an ongoing state of being. Paul is telling the Colossians what is a present reality. What is currently true about their existence, that they are in Christ. Then he says, having been fulfilled. This is a perfect passive participle. What's that mean? Well, the perfect tense indicates an action completed in the past. The passive voice means that the subject has been acted upon by someone or something else. And the participle in this tense also indicates a state of being. So, boiling that down, this... Fulfilling this completing took place in the past. It wasn't something the Colossians accomplished, but was done to them, and it's an ongoing reality of their identity. They've already been made complete in Christ. They've already been made full in Him. And what's the implication of that? You already know the answer. Then you, you don't need anything in addition to Christ. Nothing else needs to be added to Him. Paul has already used this verb for fulfilled in chapter 1 and verse 9 when he says, So that you may be filled up to the knowledge of the will of Him in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And then again in chapter 1 and verse 25, when speaking of his own calling in relation to the Colossians, Of which I, I became a minister according to the stewardship God, the one having been given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. And perhaps we can even catch or sense some of the tension that's here with this idea of being fulfilled. You know, back in chapter 1 and verse 9, he wants them to be filled. He wants these believers to mature. But now he's saying they've been fulfilled in Christ, so which is it? Well, it's both. It's you know, it's that tension we often find in Paul's writings of the already and the not yet. Believers have been fulfilled, have been filled in Christ. And there's nothing that they need in addition to Him for salvation in life. And yet... Because of the nature of this Savior and God, there's an ongoing fulfilling that takes place in the experience of believers as they grow up, as they mature in their relationship with their eternal God and King. Also, be sure to note the clear verbal link that Paul's making here with the previous verse. You have been made full in Him in whom all the fullness of deity resides. Which means you can't get any fuller than that then paul goes on to describe jesus as the head of all rule and authority and not surprisingly Paul's weaving back into themes he established in chapter one particularly in his poem his hymn verse 16 that by him all things were created in the heavens and upon the earth the seen and the unseen whether thrones whether dominions whether rulers whether authorities all things through him and in him were created and he is the head of the body the church Paul is reiterating Jesus' position, his headship over all rule and authority. And because believers are in him, then they shouldn't fall for temptation, for the temptation to submit themselves to powers that would take them away from Christ or seek to add to what Christ has achieved. Paul will come back to the theme of rulers and authorities in verse 15, which I trust we'll explore next week. But again, Paul wants these Colossians, Colossian believers to to be... clear as to whom jesus is and the supreme position of rule and authority that he holds well paul makes an interesting turn in his argument in verse 11 and maybe even a surprising one since all of a sudden he talks about circumcision this is another indicator that paul has judaism in mind as the human tradition against which he's warning the colossians but it's good for us to be clear about what paul is teaching here The verse reads, in whom also you were circumcised, a circumcision not handmade, in the putting off of the body of the flesh, in the circumcision of Christ. Now let's be very clear about what Paul is talking about here, and I'm going to give you the conclusion at the outset and then work back through the argument. When Paul refers to the circumcision of Christ, he's referring to the death of Christ. He is referring to the crucifixion. And you might immediately object and say, but Paul says the circumcision of Christ. So wouldn't that refer to when Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day in keeping with the law, even as Luke refers to in his gospel? Well, the simple answer is no. Though an implication of Paul's teaching is that crucifixion, is that the crucifixion fulfilled the Old Testament rite of circumcision. But let's go back and establish the argument. In the first place, let's, we have to follow Paul's line of thought into verse 12 in order to understand what he's saying in verse 11. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in whom also you were raised through the faith and working of God, the one having raised him from the dead. Now, to what two main events is Paul referring there? The burial and resurrection of Jesus. So then we have to follow Paul's logic. What precedes Christ's burial? Well, his death. That's what makes the most sense. It doesn't make sense to think that Paul is referring to Jesus' circumcision as a baby eight days after he was born. In the second place, when Paul refers to the putting off of the body of the flesh, that's an action that couldn't have been accomplished through the fulfillment of the Old Testament rite of circumcision. It couldn't be accomplished through that Old Testament rite. Notice some of the characteristics of the circumcision that the Colossians have received. It's not handmade. It wasn't done by hand, meaning a human hand. If it wasn't done by a human hand, the implication is that it was made by God's hand. It was done by God's hand. Interestingly enough, we encounter this kind of language in reference to the uncut stones in Deuteronomy 27 and Joshua 8 that were to be used for the building of altars for the ascension offerings, as well as in Daniel 2 of the stone that was cut out without hands, which struck and destroyed the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So God made those stones. They weren't produced by man in any form or fashion. Likewise, the circumcision to which Paul is referring was something done by God. Still more, Paul explicitly states the putting off or the stripping off of the body of the flesh. That's vivid imagery. and even harkens back to chapter 1 and verse 22 where Paul says, but now he reconciled in the body of flesh through his death to present you holy and without blemish and without fault in the presence of him. There are only two occurrences of the body of flesh in the New Testament, and they're both used here in Colossians by Paul. Again, this this is vivid and powerful imagery that Paul is using here, that the stripping off of the body of the flesh takes place at Jesus' crucifixion when his body and spirit were separated at his death. Paul is talking about the literal death of Christ. And the Colossian church is united to Christ in this circumcision even as we are. And therefore, there's no further circumcision that is needed, particularly in regards to the Old Testament law. As one New Testament scholar insightfully observes, it was not just his flesh that Christ stripped off, but the flesh of the first Adam, representing all things in their domination by the powers, this being necessary before he could assume his Adamic reign over all things. And this this ties into Paul's point about not being taken captive or being deceived by human traditions or the old order of things. They're done away with. They're no longer the controlling forces of the world. They're no longer the order for how things are to be done. A new world, a new way, a new order has come in Christ and his kingdom. Because of the death of Christ upon the cross, circumcision is no longer needed. Or as another has put it, Paul interprets Christ's death as a vicarious circumcision for us. What does vicarious basically mean? Well, substitutionary, that, that Christ did this in our place. So the circumcision of Christ is Paul's metaphor for the crucifixion of Christ. Which leads us into what he goes on to say in verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in whom also you were raised through the faith, the working of God, the one having raised him from the dead. So we're united to Christ in his death, and we're also united to Christ in his burial and resurrection. And what signifies these realities according to Paul? Baptism. And here in verse 12, Paul seems perhaps to have even fashioned this verse in a chiastic form. There's an A, B, C, uh, B, A pattern here. Buried with him in baptism. Um, So you've got this idea of buried, and then that's matched by out of the dead. In which you were also raised the one having raised him. And then at the centers, through the faith of the working of God. And notice immediately that God is the agent of salvation. God is the one who raised the Colossians from the dead, even as he raised Jesus from the dead. And observe how Paul speaks of burial and resurrection as already being true of the Colossian church on account of their union with Christ through baptism. Had they been physically buried and resurrected yet, No, but Paul speaks of these things as being realities for believers on account of them already having happened to Christ. What is true of the head is also true of the body. Even though there's the individual experience of death and resurrection still yet to be undergone for believers. And at the center of the verse is the faith in the working of God. The faith upon which Paul has been expounding throughout the letter. The faith for which the Apostle gives thanks. The faith in which the Colossians are to continue stable and steadfast. Their firm faith in Christ, which causes Paul to rejoice, and it's the same faith in which they were to be rooted and built up. And now Paul encourages a central focus of their faith on the working of God through the resurrection. The work that Paul uses, uh, the word that Paul uses, translated "working," from which we get the word "energy," is the same that he used back in chapter one and verse twenty-nine, where we read. For which also I toil, striving according to the energy of him, the energizing one in me, in power. What is the energy, that working power? What's the Holy Spirit? Which further affirms God's agency in salvation. All three of the verbs used in verse 12 are in the, in the form of the past tense, denoting completed action. And all three are in the passive voice, which means what? That the subject has been acted upon by someone or something else. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. Even consider the fact that Jesus didn't bury himself. Likewise, we don't bury ourselves in baptism. And just as we don't raise ourselves, well, neither did Jesus. He was resurrected. He was raised up by God, even as we heard earlier from Peter's, the portion read from Peter's uh, sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. Of course, understanding grammar helps inform our theology, or at least it should, and There are implications here for the doctrines of predestination and free will that we won't chase down today, but just mention in passing as food for thought um, for later on. Well, I trust that we'll get to consider the final portion of Paul's marvelous teaching in this section, examining uh, verses 13 to 15 next week. But what are some further implications of Paul's teaching for our faith and life today? Well, certainly, as has been drummed again and again, that nothing needs to be added to Christ, that He is all-sufficient for salvation, and that to seek to add to Him in any form or fashion is in reality to go back to the way in which the world operated before His life, death, and resurrection. It's to act as if He didn't accomplish all that was needed, and is to diminish His work of redemption and reconciliation. Integral to Paul's wanting the church to mature is for believers to have a clear vision of the person and position of Jesus. And that's still true for the church today, and part of the reason we find ourselves in such a mess that we do. While there are numerous factors involved, stretching back to the Enlightenment, a second great awakening with its overemphasis upon the individual experience of Christians, its diminishing of the church, and the use of the scriptures primarily as a manual on how to get saved, Well, that eventually led to a privatized Christianity that had nothing to say about life in the public square. For all intents and purposes, Jesus was dethroned, and Satan viewed as the ruler of this world from which we're trying to escape, which is really just a form of Gnosticism repackaged as a false piety. Eventually add to this the rise of dispensationalism, which for all intents and purposes chucks out about two-thirds of the Bible in the Old Testament, and that only adds to the recipe for disaster. Not long after the Enlightenment and Second Great Awakening came the rise of theological liberalism, which attacked the historicity and reliability of Scripture, particularly as it relates to the person and work of Jesus. And I realize that I'm painting with some broad brushstrokes. But when the church is not clear that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, that He alone is the Creator and Savior, then deception by man-made traditions or orders are inevitable. In the context of Scripture, what's one of the things that's man-made and problematic? Idols. Even as John Calvin remarks in Institutes of the Christian Religion, man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. What are some of the idols to which the church has given herself in recent times? Science, power, the state, personality and DNA tests, as mentioned last week athletics to a degree even theological traditions that have been placed on par with or above God's word and invariably what does what do these stem from a deficient view of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the life to which he calls us his people a life governed by the whole counsel of God as found in the scriptures from Genesis through Revelation So again, having an accurate view and understanding of Christ is crucial, which in following Paul's example leads us to consider the importance of baptism for the life of faith and some of the implications that are here in what Paul is saying. And to state the obvious, baptism connects us to the death of Christ, buried with him in baptism. The implications are manifold, but baptism indicates a break with the past. In baptism, we have died to the old world, the old life, the old ways inherited in Adam, the life given over to idolatry. That old flesh was crucified on the cross in Christ, and it's for faith to believe that, to recognize that it's not the defining characteristic of the believer, of the saints, the holy ones who have been granted sanctuary access. And yes, of course, we still struggle against the sin that still remains, the vestiges of the old life in Adam. But understanding the real break with sin that takes place at baptism, whether for the infant or the later convert, establishes the identity by which Christians need to operate. You know, Paul didn't write this letter to the low-down, no-good, dirty, rotten, sinful worms of Colossae. No, he addressed it to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. Paul didn't even negatively address the Corinthian church, and they had some pretty serious sin issues. He refers to them as those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. It's vital that you know who you are in Christ. And as baptism marks a distinct break with the past, as we recognize that's where the old is buried, then the right also indicates the birth of the new. The new life, the new world, the new creation, the new order for how the world is to operate in obedience to the commands of Christ. The creator and reconciler of all things is also pictured there. You've been raised, you've been resurrected into this life in Christ marked out at your baptism. And this being true, we also have to recognize that baptism means that the old powers of operation no longer control us and we are not to submit to them in any form or fashion. You know, Don't give yourselves, or your children for that matter, to idols. You don't belong to them and they don't belong to them. And to give one specific and current example, you don't belong to the state and neither do your children, And to act as if you do is a form of idolatry. And the Apostle Paul supports this position not only from Colossians 2, but also from Romans 13 and elsewhere. And perhaps we'll come back to this next week when we delve into verses 13 to 15. But but anything that seeks to take God's place of rule, anything that seeks to enslave and control and create a climate of fear and anxiety does not warrant our allegiance. Rather, it demands our opposition as those who have been set apart by virtue of our baptism to life in the all-sufficient Christ. So how do we withstand the onslaughts of the enemy that are bound to come? How do we stand firm and remain stable and even increase in our gratitude when things are hard or society seems to be unraveling? We stay put. We reign in Christ, confident of what His death and resurrection have accomplished, and the freedom that is ours in the new life that we're called to live in him. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. And how your word speaks to our weaknesses and tendencies. And we thank you for Paul's marvelous way of impressing this truth upon us again and again in this letter to the Colossians. And so may we take it to heart. And may we understand more fully what Christ has done and who we are in Him and so live lives that are pleasing and honoring and glorifying to you and a testimony to the freedom that is found in the gospel and in Christ alone. Bless us and keep us in these things and bear bear fruit in our lives to these ends. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen.